Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm a feminist, but if a guy I'm seeing or contemplating seeing doesn't text me at least five times a day, I will end it. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but if I had to choose between saving from a fire the lost works of Mary Wollstonecraft and Riz Ahmed's phone number, <laughs> I'd tell Riz how much I agreed with his speech about diverse casting on our first date, and I would not tell him about the lost feminist text being my fault, because why ruin it? <laughs> I mean, I haven't even oh. read the original Wollstonecraft. Have you not? Have you? Nah. No, I mean, who's <laughs> going to read it, Too really? busy, too busy. I'm a... <laughs> I'm a bad person. I'm a feminist, but even though I think that body hair is wonderful on women, should you choose to have it or not, I think it's our choice, whatever. When I found a stray hair on my ex-boyfriend's shoulder, I pulled it out whilst he was asleep. <laughs> Did you not wake up? I imagine that would be quite painful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But if you woke up and he was pulling hair off I'd you... I'd be furious. I'd be like, how dare you? My hair is beautiful and wonderful. But yeah, that, exactly. That's why I'm a horrible person. And s- single. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but one time my four-year-old nephew insisted on me wearing my wedding dress while we watched the Disney Beauty and the Beast. And I also put on my tiara, which he had not requested. (laughs) He is eight now, and I'm really hoping he asks me to take him to the cinema to see the live-action version, because I am having a special dress commissioned. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) If you don't have children, you need to borrow other people's children. Children, you do. I'm a feminist, but when I last went to Notting Hill Carnival and no guys danced with me, I felt pure, honest rage. (laughs) Rage. I'm a feminist, but recently I casually referred to a cow as a he. (laughs) 
and a little boy told me all cows were girls, and that's why we could get milk from them. <laughs> he then went on to explain why mammals lactate in details that I hadn't fully previously understood, and frankly, I found a little disturbing. <laughs> Who was this kid? It's just a kid, someone's <laughs> kid. Someone's kid who was interfering in a conversation that hadn't, it was none of his business, as I explained to him. He told me about lactation, I told him about male privilege. Fucking <laughs> mansplain it to me, kid. You don't have the equipment. Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with Deborah Francis Knight and guest co-host Susan McCormer and our very special guest, Donna Porter, talking about difficult conversations. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Welcome, Guilty Feminists all. I'm Deborah Francis White. This is Susie McComer. That makes you the audience. Um, tonight we've got difficult conversations with Dawn O'Porter. I know that's quite fancy, isn't it? And Dawn's got a new book out, so we've lured her in. She normally lives in Hollywood in a very glamorous location. You've been to Hollywood lately, haven't you, Susie? I've have been to Hollywood. It was great. Um, they had this little thing called an election whilst I was there, and um, and that went really well. Did it? Did feminism win? Um, no, we're all going to die. <laughs> feminism did not win. Who won if feminism didn't win? Oh, this really scary guy who's completely orange and I'm terrified of him, so he, all good. He seems like in the middle of the night there was a lightning storm and, you know, <laughs> someone in a, a 1980s body swap movie went, I wish I was the patriarchy. He would be... Like, uh, what's that, that film? Weird Science, just a it's, sexist, racist... Do you, do you think we could make a film... That's like weird patriarchy. Do you know what? I think after he's finished, when he's bored, that is exactly what he's going to do. He's going to publish a book and he's going to do weird patriarchy, the film. What will he do? That's a really interesting one. What will he do? I mean, let's be clear. There'll be nothing after him. It's just, why are we even... Like, there's going to be a book tour of what? The wasteland that once was the globe. If you look at his Twitter feed, it's troll Arnold Schwarzenegger, troll Hamilton the musical, troll Iran, troll North Korea. Uh, Tom Slinsky, producer of the show, I see you've come Hello, for a visit. Tom. Is there any chance that we could get some water? Oh, no, we've got Thank some water. Thank you very much. Oh, there's no. water here. Da -da. Oh. oh, it's by the seat because I thought yeah. we always have water. Oh, yeah. There's obviously something's gone wrong here. Um, I'll try and be subtle about it and no one will notice. But what I didn't realise was that the water was helpfully hidden on the floor under our chairs. So your challenge for the a difficult conversation, Susie. Yes, yes. Okay, so about two weeks ago, I won an award, guys. I won an award. I won, thank you very much. Yes, and it was the RTS Award for Best On-Screen Performance. The RTS is the Royal Television Society, but it was the Royal Television Society West of England. So not the main one, but... <laughs> I won an award and it was amazing. So I got all dolled up and I went to the awards and uh, they announced my name. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so, this is amazing. And so I got my award and it was Nick Knowles who presents DIY SOS. <laughs> who presented me my award. I was like, thanks, Nick. <sighs> Thank you, Bristol. And, um, <laughs> and so we went backstage it was, and it was amazing to have those pictures. And then I went to the loo because I was like, I'm going to text everybody. And I was on the loo, I looked at my phone and I got a message from a really dear family member of mine, a young family member of mine, telling me that she's got cancer and I thought oh brilliant fucking couldn't wait she can wait until later um, 
rude. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, it really, really unsettled me because I'm, um, I'm di- certain things have happened. I'm not the only one. We're all walking wounded. We've all been through stuff. And it was the first time in a while where I was like, oh, the wheels are coming off. I don't know how to deal with this because I had to be there for this person. And in order to be there for somebody, you need to be okay. And I was like, I'm not okay. And so the challenge that I set out for myself after completely freaking out was, I am going to ask for help. It's something that I think is really important because as a black woman, I mentioned it, black, yes, I'm here. I do feel like sometimes you're, you're told you're strong. Oh my God, you're so strong. You're so feisty. You're so amazing. And it's sort of a way of labeling you. It means that you're restricted in how much vulnerability you can show. And, and, and actually, I do have a natural disposition to sort of power through stuff. But I was at a point where I was like, do you know what? I need help. And so I contacted two of my really close friends uh, and this week and said, do you know what? I'm going to need a little bit of help and a little bit extra support. I'm not feeling that strong. Can you be there for me? And of course, you know, the scariest thing about asking for help is the asking for help, because of course, anyone that loves you goes, yes, of course, we'll be there. So that was my challenge. I did it. And I feel like I'm in a much better place to look after my family member. It's interesting that you say as a black woman, you're expected to be strong. Yeah. Do you think that's put on you at some times? Like you're, they'll see you as Oprah. Sort yeah, of thing, yeah. Like. Like, well, just sort of like you can absorb pain. It's sort of like, but you're, you're used to suffering, right? Like you're just, it's sort of like used to shit happening, right? Like you can do this. And sometimes when people say, oh, but you're strong, it's because the idea of seeing somebody who does sort of get shit done become weak is so... It's like too much to handle. I don't want to see that. I just want to see you sort of conquering the world in the Oprah way. And I've definitely felt that. And it's to do with my race. And it's to also do, I think, with the fact that, you know, I'm not, you know, little and petite. And I'm somebody who just, you know, you could kiss on the head and you could identify with the sort of advertising version of what is feminine. And I've definitely felt that my entire life. And it's meant that I've restricted myself when I've needed help or when I've wanted to show vulnerability. I definitely think. And this was just at a point where I just thought, well, it isn't just about me. It's about looking after somebody else I can only do that if I'm okay and also culturally like within my family within the women in my family it's you know we've been through a lot that's just the way it is things are just hard and I thought I don't buy that I don't want to continue my entire life things just being really really hard and so it was a big step to sort of go you know what I'm okay and I need I need help in order to help so but no I do think that's definitely to do with um, being a black woman yeah, I, it's interesting, because I think as a woman, I always feel in a professional context, if you show any emotion, it's like, it's like that's because you're a woman. Um, but I often see men in a professional context showing emotion, but they sometimes show slightly different emotions. Mm-hmm. They show anger, and my response might be to feel a bit vulnerable or teary. Yeah. And I think if you do that, then you're not professional. So we yeah. bottle up and go to the other extreme. <laughs> So my dad, my dad passed away in 2012, and that offset a lot of difficult conversations. Prior to that, I was really independent. I am an independent young lady, but I was super independent. My family, you know, I was like, thanks very much. I've got this at 19. I was like, I know life does not phase me. And, and then my dad got sick and he died. I was like, don't know what to do. So... Um, what happened was that a lot of us sort of reconnected. We all started um, depending on each other in a way that we never have. And my family are full of women. There's my mum, there's my old sister, there's my little sister, and there's my poor brother, who is irrelevant. And um, 
And, and so there were three, diff there were many difficult conversations, but there were three that I'm going to share with you. The very first one was the day that I was told that my dad was going to pass away. So I was about to go and do a film. So we all knew this and my family had already decided, you're going to go and do this film, even though that we know that dad's sick, but you're going to go off and do this film because it's brilliant, it's amazing, we're very, very proud of you. It's like, awesome. Literally morning before I was about to fly, packing my bag because I hadn't packed. Ring, ring, my little sister, my baby sister, she calls me and she says... Suze, I'm really sorry, Dad has pneumonia. It's going to be a matter of days. You need to come to the hospital and you need to say goodbye. And I was like, fuck, that's my baby sister telling me this information in the most just really stoic, calm way. Like, this is what we're going to do. We've already had a chat amongst us and this is what you're going to do. So I rushed over to the hospital, went into his room and it was just me, my mum and the nurse. And the nurse said, okay, normally what happens, the last thing to go is hearing. So what we'll do is that we'll just give you some time and you say goodbye. I was like, fuck, this is weird, this is weird, this is weird. So I sort of, uh, I went over to him and he was really peaceful and I sort of whispered in his ear and I thought, okay, what are all the things that they do in films? And he sort of said, I love you, um, thank you, um, uh, I, I love you, I can't believe this is happening. And I sort of looked, my mum like stood in the corner of the room, I sort of looked back at her and then I went into his ear and I went... But you're not going to die, are you? You're not really. You're not going to. You're going to do that on me. And he did. So that was the difficult conversation number two, I guess. So the first one, my sister, and then that difficult conversation with my dad, and that offset a lot more. So the next one was in the preparing of his funeral. Now I'm from a Nigerian family, and what I discovered with a Nigerian family during this sort of time is that all of them like to think that they're preachers. They all like to think that they're preachers. They've been anointed by God, um, and uh, and they're sort of like, you know what? You don't need the priest I can take this from here um, and we had one uncle bless him who was really like I would like to give a sermon I was like we don't have time for that um, <laughs> we really don't and our lovely lovely vicar who we've known so I'm not religious at all but I've known him ever since I was really really small and he was like I know what Nigerian families are like. We've got a really strict, like, 10-minute section for each of you. I was like, I've got it. Don't worry, Father John, I've got it, I've got it. So my uncle got really upset, and he sent me this email. This did another difficult conversation that we had to have. He sent me this email, and he was like, I would like to give a sermon, and this is what I'd like to do. Number one, I would like to address the congregation and talk to them about giving their lives to God. Number two, I would like to bring everybody who wants to be converted to Christianity up onto the stage. <laughs> The stage. The stage. Come onto the stage and accept God as your saviour. Number three will be followed with a sort of performance, e.g. mime. <laughs> you know what? That was actually, in all that time, my dad being sick and everything like that, that was the first time I laughed. So actually, I've got to give it up to him. That was brilliant, but useless, absolutely useless. And then the final difficult sort of conversation that happened was the morning of the funeral, which is, of course, really difficult and hard and all those things. And so everyone's piling into our little southeast London house. Um, we've got all the Cotneys down the road. We've got all the, you know, all the people from his work who don't really know what to do because, oh, my God, this is like, a, it's like an African funeral, isn't it? It's not. It's just a funeral. And um, <laughs> so everyone's bunked into our tiny front room. And it's really, it's actually really sweet. I'm sort of overwhelmed by how many all these different faces and looking in our front room was actually the most diverse group of people ever. And I thought, my dad's cool. My dad is so cool. This is amazing. And then this woman just stands up 
and goes, I would like to say something before we go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know this woman. In fact, to this day, this was in 2012, I still don't fucking know who she is. <laughs> she just stood up and she was like, I'd like to say something right now. Now, so this happened in 2012. So what is the big thing that happened in the UK in 2012? What is this? Anyone shout out? What happened in 2012? What was the big thing? The Olympics. The Olympics. Right. Okay. Bear that in mind. It's relevant, believe it or not. So I'd like to say something right now. I was like, okay, cool. Brilliant. So we're all like there, sort of like eyes down. Like, okay, I'll do a prayer. Jack. Jesus Christ, I'd just like to thank you for today, for bringing us all together. I was like, fair point. Yeah, I agree with that so far. Yeah. <laughs> My agnostic soul is agreeing with that. I'd just like to thank us for giving each other the strength to see this day forth. I was like, awesome, brilliant. I'm with this, I'm with this. I'd also like to just pray to God to overlook the Olympics. <laughs> That was the point where everybody in the room went. <laughs> I'm looking at my mum. My mum. Who's lost her partner? My mum's doing this. <laughs> what? We can't believe that. Overlook the Olympics. Bless all the athletes. Make Great Britain become number one in the world. Make them get all the gold medals. Collect all the gold medals. Make Great Britain never ever look at shame. Shame will never fall to Team GP. Amen. <laughs> then she left. <laughs> The whole service, I kept looking around. I was like, where's that fucking woman <laughs> who made me laugh on the morning of my dad's funeral? She wasn't in the church. She wasn't there. She wasn't there. And I just thought, bloody hell, you know what? The women of our family and the men, God, my uncle, bless him, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's also sort of where I come from with comedy is that a lot of the really, really funny things have come from really, really dark times and those horrible conversations that you've got to have. But fuck it, do it, because some of them are fucking funny. Thank you very much. the second time you did stand-up? Yeah, is it? Is it, guys? It is. I would say take a shot at Edinburgh, but you won't have time because you'll be in Hollywood or something. Um, Trudette. <laughs> or E4. Or E4 or again. Bloody hell. I just want to be on the main channel. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Crashing was on the main channel. It was, but I was only like in three episodes, like sauntering around looking really hot. <laughs> really good and crashing. Really hot. Yeah, That's yeah. where I first saw you. And I yep. was like, wow, she's hot. Yeah, and then, and then I wanted else. you to be in it more. Yeah, I know, because I was really funny. But, yeah, you know. but I didn't know you then. I didn't know you. And we know each other I now. played the long game. <laughs> I saw, I thought, I'd like to see more of her. And so I started a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One year, four months later, co host. <laughs> I put the work in, guys. <laughs> I go... Some of you don't make the effort. That's why you don't know Susie Wacoma. True that. Um, my challenge is sometimes people tweet me when they're unhappy with something on the show, and often it's something where they don't feel they've been included enough. And sometimes people are... Well, sometimes they tweet me like they're my boss, 
<laughs> Someone's got to be your boss. Yeah, and it's like, it's like, and sometimes what I really want to say is, it's a free podcast. <laughs> so I'm, I've made the one I wanted to make. If you don't want to listen to that one, don't listen to that one. <laughs> listen to the one you want to listen to, in which case they would say that one doesn't exist, in which case I would say, go and make it. Um, but I have to, if it's a matter of inclusion, fight that urge and go, what are you angry about? What are you upset about? Yeah. And sometimes I think people misunderstand and they think they, think they weren't included, but sometimes art is looking out a different window. Do people read Great Expectations or Oliver Twist and go, well, I'm not a Victorian orphan. <laughs> can't, I can't relate. Like, the whole point. <laughs> so sometimes I'll have on... Well, recently I had a black co-host, black guest, and somebody said, I couldn't relate because I have a different sort of diversity. And I wanted to say to them and didn't, because it was a difficult conversation, I wanted to say, we're looking out a different window today. The problem for me is only when we always look out the same window. So we look out the white straight male window a fuckload. Every movie, every television show, and that window becomes all of our collective window. We have our own experience, and then everything else is filtered through that window, and we're all used to looking through it. And that's why a female lead movie or television show or book is often more interesting, because we just look out that window less. And if this podcast becomes the white lady window... That becomes dull. So as it's gone on, I've wanted to try and mix it up because I find it really interesting hearing like Susie's story, for example, about you know her dad's funeral because it's so different from mine and it's mm. a window I don't often get to look out of. But the person who complained, somebody had said something that she'd felt was sort of alienating to people of colour. Now, the person who'd said it was actually a person of colour, but she was speaking from her point of view and it sounded like a monolithic point of view. So I engaged and I said, look, what should we have said? Because she said that everyone was sort of saying they, like people of colour, were other. Mm. And I said, what form of words? I DM'd her and said, what form of words should you use? She said, well, say we. And I said, if I say we about people of colour, I'm going to have so many tweets. Um, <laughs> and I said, and if I don't talk about it at all, then it's like I don't care. And if I say they in any way, then it's othering. So what, like, genuinely not argumentatively, what do I say? And she ended up saying, look, you can't please everyone, just do what you're doing. And, <laughs> and I, said, I said, look, I think the answer is more representation on stage and in the audience. I want the audience to be more diverse. So I said, would you, uh, she lived in Birmingham, and I said, are you ever in London? And I said, we are touring the show, but next show's in London. Are you ever in London? She said, yeah, I work in London a lot. I said, would you like to come to the show? And she came to the show, and the theme was about disability. And it turned out she was visually impaired. And on the stage that night, we had a disabled, incredible singer-songwriter. And the two of them got talking. And then I realized that she had a guitar case with her. And she said, I'm also a singer-songwriter. And she said, it's been amazing tonight just to be included. You know, I've met Steph, and I just feel so included here. And she basically said to me, you had the difficult conversation. Then you didn't mm. go, oh, sorry, bye. You went, what can we do then? And you engaged. And she said, I feel really included now. And she said, I'm also singing songwriter, blah, blah, blah. And I said, can I listen to any of your songs? And I listened to her song. And I said, we're doing a show up in Manchester. I know Birmingham and Manchester are different places. <laughs> Showing off my geography. <laughs> of places north of the Watford Gap. That's right, people. Different places, boom. Uh, but they are both the, that direction. Um, would, you that like to, would you like to come and play? And would you like to do a song? Because sometimes now we're having music. 
she said, do you know what, I have to cancel another gig. But she said, I really would, I would for this. So she's going to come up and she's going to be in the show on Friday night. I really think it's interesting how quickly someone can go from your show's made me very angry to they're in the show. <laughs> if, if you say... Wrong if game. You, if you, and she said to me, I said, do you mind if I talk about this? She said, no, no, I think it's great to talk about it. And she said, I could tell you had good intentions... Sometimes people don't have good intentions, and then I don't engage like that, but I knew you had good intentions. And I said, my thing now is to assume on the internet people have good intentions until they show me they haven't. And, <laughs> and I, I sort of did that. I know, I know. But I, sometimes you can see. And there are some people that tweet me about this subject matter, and, you know, I've said it before, they don't want me to change, they want me to die. And that's how it comes across. And so I don't engage. I do mute. I do block. I do go, you're being viciously attacking. And this isn't about the issue. This is personal. Anyway, I had my difficult conversation. It really worked out. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique. And your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the stage, although she is actually technically already here, Deborah Francis White! So, uh, difficult conversations. The most difficult conversation I've had that I would say is a womanly feminist conversation is a conversation that I had after I found my biological family. I am adopted, and I found my biological mother just a few years ago. Now, that is a difficult conversation in itself, isn't it? I didn't have a phone number, but I thought I'd track down my aunt, whose name is also Deborah. I know, it's spooky. Uh, so I rang her. She's in Australia, and I rang her. It was middle of the night, my time. And when she answered the phone, I said, are you Deborah, such and such? She said, yes. And I said, do you have an older sister called Devon? And she said, yes. I said, okay, I don't want to shock you, but I think I'm the baby that Devon gave away. And she said, oh, yes, what makes you think that? <laughs> And I said, because I am. Um, <laughs> does Devon ever talk about me? Does she ever say she hopes I'll call or, or she hopes I won't? And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. Devon never gave away a baby. And I went, oh, oh, I, I th I'm so sorry. I, th I, thought, I thought you knew. Uh, were, you, were you not living in the same house? I thought you were in the same house. You were 10 or 11. She would have been 20, 21. She said, yes, but she never had a baby back then. She went to live in a flat for a while. She didn't, she lived, didn't live in an unmarried mother's home. Um, 
this was clearly going to be a very difficult conversation. So I just thought, I won't have it. I just said, oh, don't worry about it. Can you just give me Devon's number and forget I called? <laughs> she said, but you have called. I said, yes, I do see that. <laughs> now, Devon was in her local town, so she said, I'll go and talk to her. I'll go and tell her your story. <laughs> and I'll call you back in two hours and tell you what she said. And I thought, that's going to be a difficult conversation. So I said to her, oh, but, um, but no, don't, don't say anything, because she'll be angry. She said, no, she'll be fine. I thought, on what basis are you making that, that <laughs> assumption? Anyway, she clearly didn't believe it. So she went off. Two hours later, she called back. The longest two hours of my or anyone's life. And she said, right, apparently your story does check out. <laughs> Devon does remember this incident. <laughs> She said she's wanted to talk to you. She's been waiting for this phone call all her life. And she'll call you in two weeks when she gets back home. <laughs> True story. We now cut to... Devon lives in New Zealand, and I have three sisters. I was talking to one of them on the phone. One of them lives in Scotland, was going back to New Zealand for Christmas, New Year. And I said, how, how do you think... I said to her on the phone, how do you think people would feel if you're going to be all there for Christmas and New Year? How do you think people, people would feel if I, um, if I... She said, what? I said, if I... She said, what? I said, if I... If you what? If I came out to New Zealand, she said, oh, Deborah, you've got to. Oh, we'd be so thrilled. You've got to come out. Now you've said that. You've got to come out. So I got on a plane and I went to Brisbane first because I needed 48 hours to get over my jet lag and have a blow dry. How your hair looks before you meet your birth family is the most important thing. <laughs> Seriously, it was for me. It was genuinely one of... It was up there. Has anyone else met their birth family? Did you get a blow dry? Yeah. yeah see? <laughs> Because it does, it makes a massive difference, isn't it? You know what a difference a blow dry will make in your life. You've got one chance to make that first impression. And really, did you, when you rocked up, feel like you had to bring your CV? This is what I did with the life you gave me. So that's, no, read it, just read it all. I mean, this is the most impressive bit. 99 to 2001, there's nothing there because I was, it was a tough time. But listen, it wasn't to do with you giving me away. So don't feel that. So, yeah, you do have a sort of feeling when you front up that you've got to be more impressive than you are. My relationship with my sisters was extraordinary because they kind of waited up and they were just so excited because a lot of siblings are bitches. <laughs> and, no, they are. They are. They're like, what do you want? Do you want the will? Do you want the money? No, fuck off. She's our mum. Did you have siblings? Uh, yeah, but I was thinking with complicated, but some cousins who are much older than me because they don't have dad who's died. Oh, okay. Yeah, so You had to look nice for cousins. Oh, fuck it. I'm not going to get blow dry for cousins. <laughs> That's extreme. Yeah, I wouldn't get a manicure for cousins. I'm not waxing anything. Uh, but, but my sisters, second night I was there, they knocked on my bedroom door, my birth mother's house, and I was doing some emails before supper. It was just a knock on the door, and I opened the door, and it was my sisters. They were standing there with a bottle of wine. Do you mind if we come in? They said, coming in. <laughs> and I sat down on the bed... And we drank the bottle of wine. And by the end of the bottle of wine, we were sisters. That's the only way I can describe it. It was absolutely extraordinary. And Mel said to me, so all my three sisters, they've all got children. And Mel said to me, uh, so you don't have any children? And I said, no, no, that doesn't seem that I do. And she said, um, do you want any? And I said, well, actually, I do. When I get back home, I'm actually going to have IVF with a donor egg. She said, a donor egg? I said, yeah, it's coming from Russia because it's easier to get eggs from Russia because of laws and stuff. And she went, don't use a Russian egg. You don't know where it's from. 
I said, yeah, well, I do. That's the key thing we know about it. He's from Russia. That's literally all the information we have about the egg from Russia. And she went, no, don't use a Russian egg. Use one of my eggs. Then the baby will be related to you. And I went, well, Mel, we've literally just met, like yesterday. And that's a terribly kind offer. But in a very real way, I don't want you to think I'm here for one of your eggs. I think that's the key bit in this exchange is I haven't come for an egg. Or a kidney. Or a payday loan. Like, none of these things. I don't need anything from you. No, she said. I want to give you an egg. I've always wanted to do that for someone. I've never had anyone to do it for. But if I give you an egg, you might have a baby like William. Now, William is my nephew, and he looks exactly like me. The trouble is his mother listens to this podcast. But I do look more like William than she does. (laughs) I mean, William, in many ways, is sort of my child. (laughs) I have never tried to steal William. That is key information. Kate, if you're listening, I've never tried to steal him, nor will I, probably. (laughs) But William, and she looked at me and she went, you might have one like William, if it's from my egg. And that is tempting, that is tempting. But I just said, look, Mel, we've just met. Motions are running high, there's a lot of laughing, a lot of crying. Why don't we just see how it goes? I'll go back to Britain, we'll talk about it in a couple of months. She said, no, I'm calling the fertility clinic tomorrow. (laughs) I'm going to give you an egg. Anyway, so... We forget about it, we drink some more wine, we have a lovely time. The next day, we go for brunch as a family, extended family, lots of kids, cousins. And uh, we're sitting around and we're just having a really lovely time. And it's the first time it feels like family to me. You know, like everybody's getting on, lots of laughs, lots of jokes. It's this really kind of hipster brunch place. Devon's gone up to buy us all brunch because she's treating us. And we're all just chatting and sitting around and having fun. And Devon comes back from the counter, sits down, and Mel just blurts out, Mum? I'm giving Deborah one of my eggs. And Devon said, did you not want the full breakfast? And she said, no, Mum, not one of my eggs, Benedict. Not one of my eggs, Benedict. One of my eggs for a body so she can have a baby. And I was like, Devon, Devon, I'm not here for an egg. I'm not here for an egg. I haven't done this for an egg. I'm not here for an egg. I've got a Russian egg. And Devon went, don't use a Russian egg. You don't know where it's from. (laughs) Cut to three months later, Mel, because she's had babies very early, she has basically never left New Zealand or the surrounds. Like, she's not done the big international travel. And so she's always wanted to come to London. She's a lot like me, only beach town New Zealand, you know, has had kids really young. All she's ever wanted to do was come to London. So she is so excited. So she's come over to do this massive egg treatment. And it's this extraordinary combination of incredibly invasive medical procedures and tourist attractions. (laughs) So we'll have this sort of invasive, terrible examination in the morning and then go to the Tower of London (laughs) or inject ourselves with industrial strength hormones and go and see Rock of Ages, which she loved, and I assume it was the hormones. Um, (laughs) And it didn't work, but here's the thing. As she got on the plane, I gave her a letter and I said, look, we, we took biology on and we lost, but in another very real way we won because now we really are sisters. And I think 
that day, there was a little piece of my feminism that activated through all of those difficult conversations, which is sometimes family is the people you're raised with, as my adopted sister is totally my family. She's my sister. She's not my adopted sister. She's my sister. But sometimes family is the people that you meet, that you choose to be family. You know, in London, we have a lot of urban family. And sometimes that family is a combination of the two, which is sort of, you know, you have the same uggs, but... Also, sometimes it takes a trade of those eggs in order for you really to be sisters. Thank you very much. Would you like to meet our guest? She's, she is a dynamic author, presenter, and generally all-round wonderful person. Uh, she has a new book out today the cows. Please put your hands together and make general mooing noises for Dorna Porter. you doing? I'm all right, thank you very much. I'm thirsty. Can I have that water, please? Yes. <laughs> is it, you not that's yours. Well, I think it was... I'm just looking for what else is hidden under this is desk. There, that's is there it. Not, is there not more water? No, this, well, no, we'll be sharing this. We can share it. Hey, oh, Are you pregnant? Are you allowed to drink other people's water? I'm not pregnant, you rude cow. <laughs> 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 I am sorry. So rude. You do seem to be a little bit pregnant. I am a little bit pregnant, yes. Mm. No, I am pregnant. I am. Just you're, to be very clear. You're, you're pregnant and doing a book tour. Yes, I sit down a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a happy combination? God, this is a feminist podcast, and I'm going, but you're pregnant and you have a job. Yeah. Oh, but if, if I was doing <laughs> your thing, we are If I was doing your thing at the beginning, I would be like, I'm feminist, but I'm pregnant, and all I want to do is sit down, <laughs> and I don't never ever want to work again. <laughs> so it's fair no, enough. No, no, I'm just imagining it and thinking, oh God, I find my life difficult, and I'm not carrying a suitcase on my stomach. The thing about being pregnant is that people are so nice to you. And oh. I realised this when I was pregnant last time. It's just a chivalrous experience when you're pregnant. People open doors, people give you seats, people take care of you, people give you... My publicist who's been with me all week just keeps giving me boiled eggs because I need protein. Like, it's oh. just... Everyone just takes care Very of you specific. all the time. <laughs> She's always got eggs in her bag. I'm going, there's a, I've got a lot of questions. I've anyway. heard a lot of women say otherwise, that they've ended up sort of crying on the floor of the tube. No. Well, that's not how my experience has been. But when I had my first baby and I wasn't pregnant and I went out without the child... Everyone was such an unthinkable asshole. No one opened doors, no one did anything, and I was like, I've got a baby at home! And you just realise just how generally horrible people are to oh, each other. That's interesting. The awesome. only reason I'm having another baby. <laughs> got to get those doors open. Yeah, just come out. I asked to open doors myself. I've read half of The Cows, and I'm, it's a page-turner. I'm really, really enjoying it, and I'm loving it because it's got... We're talking about windows. It's got four female leads. Three. Well, three in a... There's, there is a sort of, yeah. Three female leads. <laughs> I'm thinking of Sex in the City. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's got three female leads. And there's some really, really interesting themes in it. I promise you I've read half of them. <laughs> <laughs> she has. She knew something that she would only know, she said earlier. So yeah. she's not and everyone lying. else in the dressing room went, spoilers, spoilers! <laughs> like that. Are we allowed to talk about the spoiler of the, uh, the big thing that happens on the train? Let's allude to it. You'll know mm. what we're talking about, but then we won't feel like we've done a spoiler. Okay. Will you allude to it in the so, way that you're... Because I think if I allude to it, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> One of my characters is on a train after a really hot date 
But she wants to take this seriously, and she's like, I'm not going to sleep with him on the first night. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to do this the right way and hold on to a shred of my dignity. But on the train on the way home, she's really hot. There's no one else on the train, so she decides to activate that emotion. <laughs> and um, something happens where she thinks she's alone, but the entire world ends up seeing it. It's not so much as that you haven't given a spoiler, it's just that you've said it to us as if children are present. <laughs> we all know what's happened now. I didn't say it, though, so I didn't give it no, away. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it actually doesn't give away too much. She had a no, good no. old wanker on a train. No. And, um, yeah, yeah. and, and, uh, and it, it ended up being a viral hit, and her whole life was turned upside down by this event, so mm. everything became incredibly awkward afterwards. Well, something that was interesting about it for me mm. was that the woman's 42... Mm-hmm and a mother um, mm-hmm. of a child. So... A six-year-old what, child. It's not funny to say a mother of a child. <laughs> Some people are mothers to adults. That's all right. Or a mother to a baby. Um, she's a mother to a child. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah, not let go of that. And so that becomes very, very difficult because her identity is one that we associate with... Now, obviously, it's awful if anybody is filmed masturbating on a train. I'm not really saying... Is. Listen... <laughs> It sounds like it's happened to you, Susie, the way you said that. I've I've seen it. I really tried to make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Guys! No, no. (laughs) It's awful if it happens to anyone, but there are certain women who I think society imposes extra virtue onto, Mm -hmm. and mothers are some of those people. Absolutely. Nuns. If you saw a nun wanking on a train, you'd be like, (laughs) the fuck is going on here, Sister Mary Catherine, for example? Um... And women of a certain age as well. If it happened to a young woman, I think it would be seen as Ibiza japes. Yes, that's Not true. Not that there's many tube trains in Ibiza, but you know what I mean. <laughs> there would be a sort of all laddick culture and, yeah. and yeah. she was silly, she was young. Yeah. In a way, that character is foolish because she should know better than to publicly masturbate. But she didn't think it was public. So when you think you're alone, is something wrong? Does a tree fall in the forest <laughs> if you masturbate on a train? Yeah. Um, but I, would I sort of always assume on a train there could be somebody. Oh, when you're lost in the throes of personal passion, you just don't think that way, do you? You just cover yourself with a metro and get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> if my dad's listening, this is fiction. Sure, sure. Is your dad a big guilty feminist sister? Huge. God, he's your biggest fan. <laughs> I would love that to be true. I don't think he can even use headphones, let alone even know what a podcast is. No. A friend of mine told me that she was in a similar situation. She was seeing a guy and it was very hot and heavy. And then she got on a plane, economy, to New York. Ugh. No, no. I just... <laughs> You've got a bit more privacy, haven't you? I mean, if you don't masturbate I'm just in business, a massive you, snob. You really, if you don't masturbate in business, you've wasted the fare. Um, I mean, there's no point paying that kind of money That's for a you private, for. you know, with a screen up, and then it would, it would seem churlish. I really want to be on a plane with you one day. It would be privileged not to do it on a plane. Oh, I can afford business and then not have a wank. Um, uh, but, but. Uh, have you ever found business, Susie? I have, to Australia. Oh, well, that, 24 hours, come on. <laughs> All the way? All the way. I didn't have a wank, though. I was so petrified. I just got drunk. What, because you're scared of flying? Yeah, I did, it was just being in the air for that much time. I can do, like, six hours, eight hours, but it was just... All the time. It was just... I was very stressed. It was very, and then I watched... It's a, a great film. relaxer. It, what? <laughs> what is? Masturbation. Oh, <laughs> 
what is this thing you speak of? Oh, yeah, I know, but I just wasn't in the mood. I was thinking about, you know, the plane crashing. Fair enough, fair enough. But if it goes down, that's what you want to be doing. It's all I'm saying, that's all I'm saying, yeah. Um, at that point, you just grabbed someone next to you. Because, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 at that point, I'd be like, it's on! Yeah. I'm not sure this is the topic, but it is a more interesting topic. I wish we'd just done masturbation now. I'm game. Can we flip it? Turn the lights down. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's what we should have talked about. Yeah, it's a really interesting. Well, we can because you know what? It's our podcast. Let's do it. Then. We want. Yeah. Um, oh my People gosh. feel shortchanged if we stop talking about difficult conversations. <laughs> or we could have a difficult conversation. Ask you where the most public <gasps> place you've ever masturbated is. Wow. Do come out. We have a spare mic. Gosh. <laughs> this is the difficult conversation, <laughs> right. basically, isn't it? Okay, well, let's try that. We've never done this. It's not normally this kind of show. If it's your first time here, if it's your first time here, it's normally us talking earnestly about feminism with jokes. Yeah. Okay. Masturbation is a feminist issue, though. Oh, it totally is. The fact that I feel uncomfortable talking about this is a feminist issue. Like, I do. I feel like everyone always says, well, all men masturbate. And that's just how it is, because if they don't, it happens for them while they're, you know, sleeping. Because there's... Well, they get a build-up, <laughs> don't they? That sounds <laughs> so delicate and lovely. Well, actually, it's really annoying, I'm sure. Yeah. OK, so we can try this. What we'll do is everyone is going to shout out... <laughs> the most, At the same time. The most unusual or public place they've ever masturbated. And then what you're going to do... This is my special method. It's good. Then you're going to shout out something you've heard. Not something you said. Then you're going to shout at something you heard until we're all shouting at the same thing. It does work. And then we'll find, we'll find the place. <laughs> I'm okay. so excited. So exciting. Now, I suggest we close our eyes, because otherwise people won't do it. Right. And you shout out something, but you listen, shout out something you heard, and eventually everyone will be shouting at the same thing. Eyes closed. Uh, OK. Ready. I love this. Everyone close your eyes. Oh, I've got to think of mine now. Oh, well, I'm, I'm not doing mine with the bloody microphone. Mine. <laughs> Away from the mic, away from the mic. Okay, all right, all right. Ready? Eyes closed. Ready? Oh. Okay. This is terrible. Okay, one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to all play. You've got to all do it. That's not No one said anything. Everyone's got to play. Come just, on. Just one person. <laughs> One, two, two three. Something you heard. Something you heard. The library. I thought you said. I thought you said at the Lion King. The library. The library. That's a really interesting one, isn't it? Mm. I love that the guilty feminist audience <laughs> is the kind of audience that goes into the library and says, do you have a copy of Lady Shatterley's Love Island? <laughs> and an empty corner. <laughs> Funnily enough, I will say finals at university. I heard other students talking about this right. before finals, that it's the absolutely most erotic time. And it's because really? you're sort of, all you're doing is sitting down and reading and studying and shoving things into your head, and it's got to come out somewhere. <laughs> so the body responds. And when I was doing my finals, it was just like, oh my God, this must be like being a man. Because it's just constant. You're constantly aroused. Did anyone else really? get this? I think that's why people have said the library, because I wouldn't have thought I'd masturbated in a library, but I actually now do remember an, in <laughs> an instance in the Radcliffe camera 
They are quite sexy places, though, libraries. I, I feel yeah. like in a lot of, like, rom-coms, they meet in a library or in a bookshop where they're going like this. And that that's, kind of, that's kind of a scene, isn't it, that we've seen a few times. Harry met Sally and she looks over and says, there's a man over there looking at you in personal growth. That's right. Yes. Yeah. There's but there's something sexy about books, isn't there, and the fact that someone's being all, like, mindly and reading a book and not <laughs> thinking. And, like, Vintage. Reading? It's probably a sex scene or something. So, yeah, I get it. Library, good. Who said it first? <laughs> we promise not to no, declare. Who said it first? You can declare if you want. <laughs> there's another character in your book she sort of declares herself as a sort of... Just, 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 just to her choice to be single, to not have kids, and people can't really understand that. And she blogs. Yes. From her own point of view. Yes. And she has quite a hedonistic lifestyle. Well, it's not really hedonistic. It's not hedonistic. It's, it's just, not, it's it? just... It feels alternative because she's really content on her own. But she's not actually that wild. She doesn't go clubbing and have loads of sex. She's got a young lover, which because she's quite a lot older than him and she's not interested in a relationship with him and she's not interested in going down the path of having children. It feels hedonistic in a way, but it's actually mm. not. It's very simple. Just because she's single and happy to be alone doesn't mean that she doesn't want to have sex sometimes. She has a tough time with people understanding that she just doesn't want to have kids and that people kind of think she's cold or that she's missing something. Mm. Like, what's the matter with you? Why don't you want to have children? And I thought that was quite fun to play with. Because mm. yeah. I think my friends who don't have kids who, you know, some people are really sad about it, but the ones who really chose it are just constantly questioned. Yes, but why? Yeah. Mm. What's wrong? They assume that you're lying, like you're saying yes, that you're, they do that you're, assume you're lying. happy do, do to. You, how do you feel about kids, Susie? To be very honest, from a very, very young age, I was pretty sure that I wasn't too keen. Uh, me and my little sister would talk about it a lot. She was always like, I'm going to be a mum and I'm going to be a young mum. And I just I get on really well with kids. Her son, Ralph, my little nephew, he absolutely adores me and I'm amazing. Um, <laughs> and I know he wants me to be his mummy. But I, but so it's so it, so it, it, <laughs> Both of us have now said that about how none of us want children, but we'll have we yours. Should, we should do that, have our nephews and nieces. Yeah, but um, I don't, for me, it is a choice. It's an absolute choice. And I understand understand the absolute responsibility it's not a case of just in my world it's not a case of oh just make it work if it happens it happens I feel like I have a choice about it you know I'm 29 so that's how I feel now and I'm absolutely free to change my mind but mm -hmm. I've never felt the impulse to have children from a very young age actually. that's actually another theme in the book is the fact that you don't at 29 I didn't want children mm. and I woke up one morning when I was about 34 35 and it was like a full body fill my womb type mm. sensation that mm. I was having and one thing I say in the books one of the women says at the start I'll never have a child I'll never have another child and by the end she's I have the right to change my mind yeah. it's okay life goes in circles presents all these different things to you and it's okay to say never say never why do we see women as somehow kind of more virtuous. We are all a bit less comfortable, I think, with a woman who just wants to have sex with a younger lover. And Like, if that was a bloke and he went, look, I've got this lover and that's mm. all great, but I just, I'm really happy on my own, we wouldn't make the same assumptions, especially if it was a younger lover. If it's a woman, we kind of go, well, you'll settle down at some point. I or... think it's really, really simple and just plain biological. We have this organ, we have these jugs. This is why I call the book The Cows, is because we're considered like cows, we're supposed to reproduce, and we've got these milk jugs, that was, that's our role. But I think it's because people don't understand how you can have such an enormous part of your body that can do this amazing thing and not utilise it. Mm. And I think subliminally, that's what people don't understand. When you, Why wouldn't you do this incredible thing and become a mother and nurture and do all this stuff? And it's just because some people go, I didn't ask for this. Mm. Like, it's yeah. inside me, but it's, it doesn't have to be useful. 
Well, now also with, you know, there's women who, like me, have had fertility issues. There's transgender women who can't have children biologically or, you know, in terms of jugs and cows. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's a broader spectrum now. And I wonder if society is kind of catching up and seeing a kaleidoscope of women I mean, slowly and probably yeah. in our very liberal pocket, to be fair. But I think it does. that's where it starts and it does permeate. I think absolutely. And that's why I wanted to write the book, because I realised that my peer group is... Everyone's completely different. I was actually a bit odd for having a kid. A couple of my friends are freezing eggs. Do they, do they want them? <laughs> I, I know a girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Hook us up. Super. Hook us up uh, with your own girl. Do we have any questions? We can... Oh, there's one up the back. Um, I was just wondering with uh, the book, because this is the first time I'm hearing about it and I'm really excited to kind of read it, but um, just generally with the age ranges, was it specifically, because we've talked about two women sort of in that age range, was that something that you were specifically looking at exploring? Yeah, it was my kind of age range. And obviously I actually started writing the book before I was pregnant and it was going to be about three women who weren't having children. Then I had a baby and I couldn't not write about it, so I gave one of them a child. Um, so now it's quite rounded on all scenarios. Is this a where motherhood is really pressing either on yourself or by the pressure that you're getting from other people I don't think if I'd have made one of the characters like mid-twenties there would be that same feeling but actually Stella the youngest one she's got the breast cancer BRCA gene and she's facing the fact that she might have to have everything removed she wants to do it naturally and she's running out of time not for the biological clock issues but because of this procedure that she might have to have so she's kind of just going to go out there and get sperm however she can and I just think it was just an interesting thing to play with when you feel that you're running out of time for whatever reason and the way that other people make you feel The Guilty Feminist on Twitter at guiltfempod. Check out our Instagram, instagram.com forward slash the guilty feminist. Like our Facebook page, sign up to our mailing list to get notified as soon as a new episode is released. And please go to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe. It all helps other people find the podcast. And give it five stars. Um, <laughs> you can you know you can rate every episode. People sometimes think I've done five stars, that's it for me now. No. You can rate every episode. And if you loved it, you would. <laughs> it's, remember, it's free. Susie? Yes? Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Got two shows on all four. If you want to see them, Crazy Head and Chewing Gum, have a look. Yeah, fine. Super. Yeah. Dawn? Got anything you'd like to plug? My novel, The Cows. Yay! <laughs> Super. And you can actually buy The Cows in the foyer. Are you signing any? If anybody wants me to sign one, I'll stick around awkwardly and hope that happens. Right, okay. I really recommend it. It really is a page-turner. I have gripped. Also, Jess Phillips, MP, has a book that's brilliant called Every Woman, and that is also in the foyer available for you to purchase. So why don't you go and buy two books, do yourself a favour, buy two books, and then go and have a nice wank in the library. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Susie Bacoma, and our special guest, Orno Porter. The recording editor was Chris Sharp. The music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Zelinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe Metasani and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Because I emailed them to myself. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> What's happened to my I'm a feminist but? I mean, they've honestly gone missing. I, I was trying to copy and paste them before. Yeah. And they wouldn't copy and paste. They refused to copy and paste. Tom? 
Tom, <laughs> genuinely, this is like a genuine emergency. Deborah is a feminist, Tom, but she Tom, can't find her I'm a feminist but without the help of a man. I emailed them from my computer so they won't be in sent mail. And I don't remember what I said because I wrote them just before the show. <laughs> this is like literally ah. the worst thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> because I'm white. And... <laughs> it's fine, guys. I found them. <laughs> I laughed too hard at that. <laughs> Hello, Guilty Feminists. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for writing in. Thank you for all your support over the last year. Now, many of you have expressed a desire to get involved, to make some of these challenges real and alive, especially along the lines of career development, not apologizing, stepping into the space. So we have some workshops. Now, these are just the start. We're just testing the waters here in London, and then hopefully we'll be able to bring them around the country and even even wider internationally. The first two will be on the 22nd and 23rd of April. Jessica Regan, who's an actor who was in the Gender Blind Henry V, and I are going to do a workshop on big speeches, uh, male speeches from Shakespeare, speeches from history, taking the space and owning it. You can book for those workshops on guiltyfeminist.com. The price will be £50 for a day workshop but there will be £10 places for those who cannot afford the £50. And please chip in a little bit more for another feminist to join the workshop if you can afford more. We want these to be accessible to everyone and intersectional. Um, we also have more of a corporate leadership day. Many of you know that I go into the corporate world and work with women on taking up the space. So there's going to be a very big leadership event uh, with me speaking and other brilliant people that you can work with, uh, a special Guilty Feminist episode on negotiation. Uh, with Suzanne Williams, who is uh, well known for negotiating with people who have hostages for the government uh, and for other organisations. And that is going to be an incredible special leadership day. Hopefully you can get your company to sponsor you to come on that if you are in the corporate world. That day will be £195, but again, there'll be £10 places. Please chip in more if you can or pay if you can. If you can't, please write in and you can go on our list for a £10 place. Details of all these things are on Guilty Fair ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines 
in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. <laughs>